Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will be looking at Salman and the secret origin of Islam. With me is philosopher Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is the author of Prometheus and Atlas, as well as World State of Emergency, and also Lovers of Sophia, and also Novel Folklore. Welcome once again, Jason. Pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey. Let's uh, begin our discussion by talking about the person of Salman and his role in the uh, early years of uh, the Islamic religion. Well, Salman or Salman Farsi, Salman the Persian, was one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, one of his very earliest companions. And uh, there are a number of conflicting oral traditions about just who this man was, when he met Muhammad, um, what his biography was, and exactly what role he played in the formative stages of Islam. Uh, you know, we have these uh, hadiths, or oral traditions, yes. from the companions of the Prophet. Uh, and they're not always um, in sync with one another. But there is one very curious passage in the Quran itself. I believe it's uh, Surah 16, Ayah 103, uh, chapter 16, verse 103 in the Quran, which references the fact that, uh, you know, the Quran is in, in Allah's voice and speaks of Muhammad in the third person consistently, mm -hmm. even though it's being recited by Muhammad. And this verse speaks of, uh, makes reference to the fact that uh, people are promulgating this rumor that uh, a certain Aryan is responsible for the composition of the Quran, a certain Ajam. Ajam is the word that the Arabs used to refer to the Aryans to the north, namely mm -hmm. the Iranian people. And the verse says, you know, something to the effect of, we, we hear that they say that this Ajam is the composer of these verses. But uh, this glorious Quran is composed in the Arabic tongue, as if to suggest that so-and-so Ajam doesn't speak Arabic. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, Salman spoke Arabic, and he spoke a number of different languages fluently. How do we know this? And there are uh, oral traditions that state that, mm -hmm. that, you know, he had learned he was a businessman by the time he wound up in Arabia, and... Uh, at the very least, to conduct better business, he spoke a number of languages. Mm -hmm. But I think this man's past is much more intriguing and convoluted. Um, some of the oral traditions suggest that he was uh, part of the order of the Magi. He mm -hmm. was a, a mage, or mm -hmm. you could say magician, uh, in the Persian Empire. Yes. And then he converts to Christianity. And, uh, you know, in the process of doing that, you would learn a great deal about the Abrahamic traditions. Islam didn't exist yet, so... You know, you would learn about Judaism and Christianity by converting to Christianity. Uh, and, you know, it's worthy of note that the Christians of the time were rather ascetic, uh, at least in the Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. So how curious that after converting to Christianity, he becomes a businessman. He becomes an international businessman uh, involved in trade, in particular with Arabia. And this is what brings him to Mecca. 
where he seeks out the wife of the Prophet Muhammad, Khadija, who is a very uh, powerful businesswoman. Mm -hmm. um, who, as I recall, was also Jewish. Uh, yeah, she she was from from a tribe that was of Jewish origin, mm -hmm. and she had a number of Christian friends. And so, via Khadija, according to some oral accounts, mm -hmm. uh, she befriends Muhammad. And there are these rumors that, you know, it's Salman who's putting the Quran into Muhammad's mind. Yes. Well, Salman becomes most famous for teaching advanced military tactics to Muhammad, mm -hmm. which help him to prevail in battles against other Arabian tribes uh, in the face of tremendous uh, odds. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he... Uh, advises Muhammad on how to conduct, for example, trench warfare, uh, a Sasanian military tactic. Mm -hmm. Who is this man who is a Magi, who converts to Christianity, then becomes an international businessman, and who by the time he winds up in Arabia uh, is teaching Muhammad advanced military tactics, and the man who speaks a number of languages? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one has to wonder whether this is a military intelligence operative of some mm -hmm. kind. Then the question becomes, on the part of whom, uh, with what motive, with what objective? Yes, that that makes uh, sense so far. And uh, from my uh, short study of the situation, his his role in the trench warfare is rather well documented. That's right. So, there's another incident in Muhammad's combat with various other Arabian tribes that I think is relevant in this regard. Uh, I believe it's at the Battle of Badr. An alleged army of angels gallops onto the battlefield. And they're very strangely garbed, mm -hmm. according to the witnesses. And they're the ones who uh, turn the battle in favor of Muhammad. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, the odds were that he should have been easily defeated. So, what was the strange garb that these, uh, you know, angelic warriors were wearing? There's a story from the late Sasanian period uh, of an incident that occurred in northern Iran uh, that I think um, is relevant to this episode at the Battle of Badr. And that's that uh, the Sasanian emperor Khosro, Khosro Anushiravan, I believe, the one who invited the Platonic philosophers to the Persian court after Justinian closed the academies, Khosro uh, rides up to the north uh, of Iran to resist the Turkish invasion. Mm -hmm. By this time, the Turks had come down into Central Asia, and they were impinging on the borders of the Persian Empire. And Khosrow's Sasanian military is facing a possible defeat at mm -hmm. their hands. Uh, the battle is not going well. And all of a sudden, these um, chainmail-clad uh, horseback riders descend onto the battlefield, and both their uh, chainmail armor and their horses are covered with green fabric. Mm -hmm. And they uh, turn the battle in favor of Khosrow, and they defeat the Turks. Mm -hmm. And when Khosrow wants to thank whoever was responsible, it's very difficult for him to get any answer out of these people as to who they are. They don't want to identify themselves. Oh, and it's also uh, uh, relevant in this regard that their faces are covered with green veils. Only their eyes are visible, mm. and their faces are covered with green veils, mm. these riders. So he, he finally um, 
forces the head of this army to identify himself as belonging to the House of Karen. Mm-hmm. The House of Karen ruled in Mazandaran, uh, the part of northern Iran on the coast of the Caspian Sea. And they were one of a number of uh, Parthian feudal houses who had been displaced by the rise of the Sasanians. Mm-hmm. The Parthians had ruled the Persian Empire for about 400 years before Ardashir Babakan, the founder of the Sasanian dynasty, overthrew them mm-hmm. and uh, dislodged them from the prominent role that they played, both in the bureaucracy of the nation and also in its military. Mm-hmm. The Parthians didn't have a, exactly a conscript military. They relied on the alliance of knights in the service of various houses mm-hmm. to form coalitions that would go and fight their enemies, for example, the Romans. Yes. A feudal uh, system. A feudal system. And Ardashir established a conscript military. Mm-hmm. So he sidelined the Parthian knights of the various houses. Yeah. And he also developed a type of administrative bureaucracy at uh, Tisfun, the capital of the Sassanian Empire, that uh, marginalized the Parthians. Mm-hmm. So they had an axe to grind against yeah. this guy. Something that's even more significant than that is that Ardashir Babakan... For the, he was from a family of Magi in Pars, in mm-hmm. Fars, the uh, Shiraz area province of Iran, which, you know, is where Persepolis is. Mm-hmm. So he was from a family of Magi in that area. And after hundreds of years of the dominance of Mithraism, uh, in, uh, you know, under Parthian rule, Ardashir establishes Zoroastrianism as the state religion of Iran. Now, even though, you know, Darius and other Achaemenids refer to Ahura Mazda uh, in their inscriptions, mm-hmm. Zoroastrianism was not any official state religion of the Achaemenid Empire. So, so just to be clear, there were, we're talking about three different empires now, the Achaemenids, the Parthians, and the Sasanians. That's right. Mm-hmm. And it's only with the Sasanians that Zoroastrianism becomes an official state doctrine, mm-hmm. a uh, an orthodox theology mm-hmm. that is supposed to serve as the basis for political power. Yes. And to turn the teaching of Zarathustra into that, Ardashir had to make a number of reforms which were rejected by many of the Magi mm-hmm. as being... Uh, Perversions, mm-hmm. I'd have to say. I don't want to use the word innovation because innovation is a key concept in Zoroastrianism. They viewed these as perversions of Zarathustra's teaching. I, I guess that what we're talking about is a very authoritarian version of uh, Zoroastrianism. A hierarchical um, theology that is meant to shore up a centralized, fortified state. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Various heterodox forms of Zoroastrianism arose in opposition to this. The, the roots of Mazdakism can actually be traced to this period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in the Parthian period, it's not as if the, the Parthian uh, Magi rejected Zarathustra by any means mm-hmm. or rejected the idea of Ahura Mazda. They had a highly syncretistic pagan religion that accommodated both Zoroastrian ideas and older Mithraic ideas. It was Mm -hmm. a form of Mithraism that included reverence for Ahura Mazda and respect for Zarathustra. Mm -hmm. So, so in a way, Ardashir is a a puritanical Mm -hmm. theological leader and a political uh, uh, 
leader. And a, and a military conqueror. A military conqueror who also had as his explicit aim the reconquest of all of the territories that the Persians had lost to the Romans. Mm -hmm. So what was at Ardashir's time, the Eastern Roman Empire, namely the entire Middle East up to the border of Iraq, which mm -hmm. is where the Parthian Empire started. Ardashir aimed to reconquer all those territories. Okay? Mm -hmm. So what's very important is, is that the Parthians had been uh, fighting a victorious battle on a psychological and social level against the Romans mm -hmm. to make Mithraism the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. And, and had been quite successful, as I recall. The, the Roman army was largely you know, worshippers of Mithra. That's right. The Roman military, the Roman legions had largely adopted Mithraism, and the Roman aristocratic houses uh, in the port cities of the Mediterranean mm -hmm. had also been converted to Mithraism by Mithridates and other Parthian emperors' use of the Cilician pirates as a black ops navy in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were about this close from Rome adopting Mithraism as mm -hmm. its official religion yeah. uh, when Constantine institutionalized Christianity. Why did Constantine do that? Um, in the course of looking at the life and, and deeds of Ardashir Babakan, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, if, if I were a Roman at that time, looking mm -hmm. at a ruler in Iran who is destroying Mithraic temples in his own country, Ardashir shut off all the fires of the various temples of the Magi, except for three that he considered, three temples that he considered preservers of pure Zoroastrianism, and mm -hmm. they were all in uh, Pars. Mm -hmm. So, he uh, is shutting down temples all across his own country, probably smashing idols, doing God knows what to the scriptures of these temples. I have to say, you know, uh, it's, it's a mystery why there's no literature left from the Parthian period. Probably the most exquisite architecture and sculpture in Iran's history is from the Parthian period. Mm -hmm. These were extremely sophisticated people. Yeah. Why do we have barely any Parthian literature? You know, in Iran, the Magi uh, maintained temples that were also libraries. I wonder what happened to these Parthian texts mm -hmm. when Ardashir decided to puritanically restructure the religious life of the society. So the Romans are looking at this, and they're thinking to themselves, this man wants to conquer all of the Eastern Roman Empire? Well, the Romans and the Parthians have been fighting back and forth, but it's not as if when the Parthians conquered a Roman town, they went in and abolished all the pagan temples. On the contrary, they were attempting to synthesize the various pagan beliefs under the umbrella of Mithraism. They were mm -hmm. very tolerant and yep. humanitarian, humanistic. Mm -hmm. So I think, frankly, Ardashir terrified the Romans into believing that in order to protect themselves against Sasanian Iran, they would need to adopt a form of, of religion that was uh, formally similar to what Ardashir had made out of Zoroastrianism. Mm -hmm. And there was no pagan European religion like that. In other words, they needed a state religion. They needed a religion that would even be conducive to being a state religion, mm -hmm. uh, that would be uh, un uniformitarian, hierarchical, uh, that would have a, a you know, totally centralized theology. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have anything like that. So they found Judaism. And they found this, you know, Judea was a province of the Roman Empire. Yes. And they found this particular sect of Judaism, 
which they thought they might be able to amalgamate with Mithraism, which was rising at that time, mm-hmm. which would explain why there are so many Mithraic beliefs, symbols, and practices in Christianity, in mm-hmm. Roman Catholicism. Yeah. And Christianity at, at that point spread quite uh, widely throughout the Roman Empire. Yes. So, I think what happened is that the Roman elite around Constantine decided that they needed to uh, establish Christianity as the official religion of Rome in order to protect Rome from uh, Ardashir Babakan and his legacy am- among the other Sasanids. Who was really the main political rival. Right. So, effectively, Ardashir and those among the Sasanians who followed in his line of thinking, and mm-hmm. there were many who did not, I would maintain even his son, Shapur, who backs Mani and the rise of Manichaeism, does not agree with his father mm-hmm. about what direction to take. Yeah. And later, Kavad, who, who backs the Mazdakites, also mm-hmm. doesn't follow this line. Both the um, Manichaeism, I'm saying it wrong, That's Manichaeanism, Manichaeism, yeah. and, and Mazdak, Mazdakism. Mazdakism are both Gnostic versions of uh, the religion. And it's important that they both date back to the time of Ardashir. Yeah. So, you know, these are viewed as heresies. Mm -hmm. Well, what was Ardashir creating? These aren't heresies so much as they're remainders. They're Mm -hmm. what's been pushed to the margin. Mm -hmm. They're what is protesting against Ardashir and saying, wait a minute here. You know, there's other ways of interpreting Zarathustra. There's other ways that Zarathustra relates to the traditions of other Mm -hmm. uh, cultures. Um, So that, for example, Mani tries to synthesize the teaching of Buddha with that of Zarathustra. And now we're talking about a few hundred years before the birth of Islam. Right. So there was this, you know, really orthodox, puritanical form of Zoroastrianism that was upheld by some of the Sasanids in the line of Ardashir. Mm-hmm. And it wrecked the Parthian society. And it sidelined the Parthian feudal houses. And it destroyed their project of culturally conquering Rome. Yes. Well, that's a large axe to grind on the part of the Parthian elite. They they had their own empire, and they lost it. And they also had uh, magicians, Mm -hmm. magi, Mm -hmm. who were... Now, remember, the the Mithraic religion that the Parthians took into Rome was quintessentially a religion of secret societies and secret initiations, Mm -hmm. right? much more so than the Orthodox Zoroastrianism of Ardashir. It's an esoteric, occult uh, form of religiosity. And and, and as I understand it, had deep astrological significance. That's right. And so, we're talking about a group of occultists. Mm -hmm. The Magi of the Parthian period, whose fire temples Ardashir shut off. It's the worst thing you could do, shut off an eternal fire, Mm -hmm. right? The fires that he extinguished... um, were the fires of magi who were occultists, who mm-hmm. were leaders of esoteric societies. In other words, who were people adept in the occult. Mm-hmm. Salman Farsi, or uh, as he used to be called before the days when he was a companion of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, Ruzbe Kazeruni, was a magi. Mm-hmm. He was an occultist. Yes, which is part of the established history. Yes. Well, it's one of the oral traditions. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, here's my question. At the behest of whom was Salman Farsi sent to put these ideas into Muhammad's head? Mm-hmm. I believe uh, he was serving the house of Karen. Mm-hmm. And I believe that because, as I suggested, these um, 
knights wore chainmail armor covered in green, their faces veiled in green, and their horses covered in green. Yeah. And green becomes the holy color of Islam. Why does green become the holy color of Islam? Probably because the angelic army that appeared at the Battle of Badr was uh, dressed in the fashion of the knights of the House of Karen. The same army that had come to rescue Ardashir. Uh, Khosro had come to rescue oh. a later Sasanian emperor, Khosro. But what's important about that encounter with Khosro is they don't like the guy. Yeah. They don't even want to identify well, and, themselves. And Khosro is uh, contemporaneous with Mohammed? Or? Uh, uh, he is a, a couple of, a generation or two before Mohammed, a couple of generations before Mohammed. Okay. He's in the 500s. Yeah. And it's in the 600s that uh-huh. Mohammed uh, conquers it. Mohammed's okay. armies, the Muslim armies, conquer Iran. Mm-hmm. Okay? So. No, but what's important in terms of the encounter with Khosro is that the army that bails him out hates him. They don't even want to identify themselves. Right. They didn't do it for Khosro. They did it because they don't want Turks invading Iran yeah. and threatening the realm of the House of Karen mm-hmm. in Mazandaran. Mm-hmm. And Khosro faced possible defeat. Yeah. And so, so these people are excellent tacticians. They've, they've got some esoteric politics that they're pursuing. And they're willing to play a very sophisticated, complex game. That's right. You know, once I made the connection between the angelic army at the Battle of Badr and the green-clad knights of the House of Karen, mm-hmm. uh, including these veiled green, you know, green-veiled faces. So this is another interesting layer in this whole, uh, you know, puzzle of the secret origins of Islam yes. and the possible Parthian conspiracy to. Uh, engineer Islam in the Arabian Peninsula, unify the various uh, tribal uh, Arabs and pit them against the Sasanids, use them to overthrow, to shatter and overthrow the Sasanian Empire, presumably to open up the space for a return of the Parthian feudal houses. Mm -hmm. I think there was one other uh, motive, though, that's at a deeper level than, than merely political machinations. And that's that if you think back to what Ardashir Babakan did with the creation of this puritanical Zoroastrian theology, um, he not only transformed the religious life of the Iranian people in a way that prevented a humanistic integration of, let's say, Mahayana northern India with Mithraic Rome mm-hmm. by... Uh, instituting a fortress mentality mm-hmm. by defining a Zoroastrian Iran against mm-hmm. non-Zoroastrian or Buddhist India in one direction and pagan Rome in the other direction. So he not only deeply altered the religious life of the Iranian people, he also uh, catalyzed the catastrophic destruction of Alexandrian culture in Rome by... Mm-hmm. Virtue of the uh, adoption of Christianity as a straight state religion. Out of sheer terror on mm-hmm. the part of the Romans, who felt like they needed to protect themselves mm-hmm. from this ideology by adopting a similar ideology. Uh-huh. Catalyzed is an interesting word here, yes. Yeah, so I think what the Parthians were up to, what the House of Karen was up to, was creating an inoculant, mm-hmm. a psychosocial inoculant. This belief system was engineered by this Magian elite mm-hmm. uh, that were the last remnants of the Parthians to present hierarchical, patriarchal, 
theocratic totalitarianism in the most concentrated form possible and inject it into a society that, after all, did value in a profound way innovation, uh, liberty, free-spiritedness, tolerance, so that the immune system, metaphorically speaking, of Iranian society would reject this in essence. So you've got now the, the Byzantines coming at Iran uh, with their armies, trying to convert Iran to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And you have this orthodox form of, of Zoroastrianism, which has just massacred hundreds of thousands of Mazdakites mm -hmm. in the mid-500s, yeah. okay? Only a century before Muhammad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Only a century before the Islamic conquest of Iran, rather. And so I think they were trying to accomplish a number of objectives at once. They were trying to inoculate the Iranian psyche against theocratic totalitarianism and puritanicalism. Mm -hmm. Well, it backfired. Right. But, and they were also trying to make sure that the form of consciousness that arose from that would not be conquered by Byzantine Christianity. And that instead what might happen is what they were trying to accomplish in the first place with Rome. Namely, that the Iranians would... Uh, spread a form of spirituality back into Europe that would lead to social enlightenment. Mm -hmm. It backfired, but not immediately. Uh, what happened was, interestingly, within the first couple hundred years of the uh, Arabian Caliphate's conquest and colonization of Iran, the only part of Iran that remains totally free and independent is the Mazandaran region or Tabaristan region that was ruled by the House of Karen. So my first question is, did they cut a deal mm -hmm. with the Arabian Caliphate? Because, you know, Salman, uh, or Ruzbek Hazaruni, Salman of Farsi, Salman the Persian, was also given uh, control of the governorship of the former capital of the Sasanian Empire. Mm -hmm. So was some deal cut between Salman, the House of Karen, uh, and the Arabian conquerors to maintain the independence of, of their fiefdom in the north of Iran. And then within the span of those two, three hundred years after the Arabian conquest, various semi-independent uh, fiefdoms, semi-autonomous uh, Persian fiefdoms arose, and by about a thousand AD, they had... Uh, undercut the Arabian Caliphate to the point where they were effectively uh, self-governing and they were promulgating a Persian renaissance mm -hmm. in science and literature. You know, 90% of the scientists of the so-called Islamic Golden Age in science were actually Persians. Mm -hmm. And the courts that were uh, acting as the patrons of these science scientists were also patrons of the revival of Persian literature, mm -hmm. most significantly the, the Shahnameh of Ferdowsi in that same northern part of Iran. The right? Book of Kings. Yeah, in, in the same northern part mm -hmm. of Iran, not far from the realm of the House of Kings. We should mention, just to be clear, that book, the Shahnameh, the Book of Kings, is something like the, the national epic of Iran even today. That's right. Mm -hmm. So the point is that it was working. The golden age of Islam mm -hmm. is a, had, it has nothing to do with Islamic theology in a positive sense. In fact, it has to do with Islamic theology in a negative sense. In that when you look at the work of somebody like uh, Zakaria Razi, you see an extremely humanistic, secular, skeptical thinker mm -hmm. who has been freed from Zoroastrian orthodoxy mm -hmm. to think as a, as a Persian free thinker. Yeah. And that characterized the whole culture of that period that is, in a, in, a, in a real travesty, described as a golden age of Islam. The point is that Islam, the inoculant, 
inoculated the Persian psyche against any form of religious totalitarianism. For a brief period of time. Well, they didn't know that. Yeah. These, these uh, you know, schemers in the House of Karen didn't know that. The Turks would wind up coming in around 1100 mm -hmm. and adopting Islam of their own accord and uh, taking over rulership of the caliphate from the Arabs who they defeated and reimposing Islam in an even more totalitarian form on the Persian people. And then they're closely followed by the Mongols mm -hmm. who adopt the same strategy yep. of seeing in Islam a perfect means of um, governing an empire in a totalitarian fashion, a mm -hmm. great basis for a totalitarian state yeah. ideology. So this is something that they didn't foresee. And, uh, you know, it, it, it turns Islam into something completely different from what I think it may have been designed to be. Mm -hmm. It was designed specifically for the Iranian people to work on the Iranian psychosocial system. They mm -hmm. were simply bringing about a temporary political unity of Arabian tribes for the purpose mm -hmm. of unseating the Sassanids mm -hmm. and returning to power themselves. Well, it certainly seems as, as if this uh, narrative that you've developed uh, has many points of uh, veridical uh, contact information that, that supports it. And uh, I have to say it would probably be heretical from almost every standpoint. It would, but on the other hand, I think it offers tremendous promise to the Persian people in terms of defining their own future. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, this narrative that Islam was imposed on us by these barbaric Arabs and so on and so forth, it, it's very reactive. It's also been one of the mysteries of, of Iranian history, how a tribal, nomadic group could ever have conquered the world's superpower. Mm -hmm. Well, this makes a lot of sense out of yeah. it. It was an inside job. I suppose it's worth mentioning parenthetically that the uh, novelist Frank Herbert in his Dune series of books looks at the uh, jihad, the, the spread of Islam uh, in, in science fiction terms and uh, uh, presents a, a fictional scenario that involves intrigues much of the in, along the same lines as you've described in this narrative. Yeah, in a way, Salman and uh, the House of Karen operating in Arabia are like Paul Atreides the Noble mm -hmm. and his associates who come to the Dune planet yeah. and uh, catch a, a plot that uh, affects the uh, destiny of the whole galactic empire. Jason Reza Giorgiani, you're very bold to uh, e even begin to imagine uh, such possibilities as this. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for being willing to entertain such dangerous ideas. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.